You may be seated. Well, good morning, and again, happy Mother's Day to you mothers. You know, uh, being a mother is like being a mix of a rocket scientist and a janitor. I mean, who else has that kind of job description? So we love you, we affirm you, and we are so very thankful for you. Today, this Mother's Day, I want to share with you something that has been stirring in my spirit for a while. Now, at first, you may think this has nothing in the world to do with Mother's Day, but in reality, it has everything to do with you mothers. It's the biggest need in our world today. Its pervasive absence is one of our greatest downfalls. It's what makes the church of Jesus Christ strong, life-giving, sacrificial, compassionate, and just. And it's a mission is what makes us as a church, makes us as Christians in our Christian homes, self-absorbed, indifferent, and anemic, spiritually weak. Personally, I have found it to be one of the greatest sources of joy in my life, a tremendous source of clarity and power. And yet maintaining it is one of the hardest things I do as a man. I'm talking about prayer and what Jesus has to say about prayer as the foundation for what it means to be a mother, a father, a single, a student, a salesman, a a school teacher, retiree. You see, according to the Bible, faith prays like sparks fly upward. And James tells us we do not have because we do not ask. Now, I know a number of you are visiting today because it's Mother's Day, and some of you may not self-identify as a Christian. Research tells us that all of us long for spiritual experience. All of us. And so this morning, as we go through our passage, what I want you to see is what Jesus has to say about spiritual experience through the most famous of all prayers, the Lord's Prayer. It's been said that the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' Prayer, is the prayer that unlocks all others' prayer. Others have said, you know, the Lord's Prayer is the most spoken set of words in human history. It's worthy of our attention this Mother's Day. Because not only does it teach us how to pray, but it teaches us how to experience God. How we can come face to face before God, have a conversation with God, listen to God, and pour out our hearts to Him. So grab your Bibles, we'll put these words on the screen, there are Bibles in the racks in front of you, and let's look at the Lord's Prayer, which is found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Beginning in verse 9. We read in the first half of verse 9, or the first part of verse 9, Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. 
how she, you should experience God. But rather than me reading this out loud, let's all of us say this out loud together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now there are six parts to this prayer. It's the way it's classically been uh, broken down. And I'm going to take them, those six parts, in two groups of three. Why? Because the first three statements, the first way Jesus teaches us to pray is a vertical thing. It's about addressing God as God. Uh, they're statements of praise, statements of worship. Then the second group is more horizontal. It focuses on our needs, our prayer requests as we talk about them, how we should ask God. Sometimes people in the past have used the word petition. Now what I want you to see before we jump in and look at each one of these six statements is that the order is important because Jesus is saying central to prayer is starting with addressing God as God, worshiping God, uh, praising God. In other words, we will never experience, we will never experience God if we view God merely as a cosmic vending machine, you know, who exists to meet our needs. Jesus is saying, no, don't approach God like that. God is too holy, God is too uh, majestic. Prayer is always a spiritual conversation uh, where you address God as God. Uh, you talk to God about who he is. You remind yourself of who God is. You meditate on his attributes. And then you bring in that context your requests to him because you understand him. So let's begin with this vertical group. And the very first thing Jesus tells us in terms of how to pray is to pray our Father in heaven. Now this surprises us. It would have certainly surprised Jews and Romans in the first century world. They would have expected, we expect Jesus to begin more formally, uh, to say uh, great ruler or supreme emperor or sovereign king, something like that. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus invites us to press into our hearts that God is our Father. Now what does it mean for God to be our Father? How does God become our Father? Well, in making this statement begin with saying our Father in heaven, Jesus is looking ahead to the cross where according to God's sovereign plan, he will die in our place as our substitute to rescue us from our self-centeredness, our spiritual brokenness, our sin. So that the moment we own that sin, we, we confess our sinfulness before a holy and righteous God, and we receive the forgiveness God offers us in Jesus Christ. At that very moment, the Bible says all sorts of things happen to us. 
We are forgiven, we are made righteous, we are, we are cleansed, we are um, given eternal life, permanent life forever with God. We become united to Jesus. And one of the things near the top of the list that happens the moment a person believes in Jesus is they are adopted into God's family as precious sons and daughters. So prayer experiencing God doesn't begin with asking, 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 but with the ongoing realization that in Jesus Christ, God is not my judge, God is my father. And to say God is my father is to say God is for me. What does it mean that God loves you? It means that God is for you. What does it mean that God is your father? It means he is for you. And we say my primary identity, the moment we say uh, our father in heaven is my primary identity, isn't my appearance. It's not my performance. It's not my possessions. It's not my friends. It's not this or that. It's the fact that I am a child of the living God. And I've been brought into his home. I've been adopted into his family. And you know what that means? That means your picture is on God's refrigerator. It means your name is written on the palm of his hand. A couple of years ago, uh, our son, while he was in college, had some surgery on his sinuses and his tonsils taken out at the same time. Now that first night, he was really hurting. And he couldn't swallow hardly at all. That's what happens when you're older and your tonsils come out. And, and the reality is he was kind of panicked about swallowing. So as he laid down that night, he said, Dad, I need you to stay with me. I need you to, to lie down here with me. And I did. Now when Jesus tells us uh, to pray, and as we pray, to continually remind ourselves that God is our Father. What he is saying is that in Jesus Christ, the living God has crawled into your bed, has moved into your life, and he is there to protect you, to take care of you, to bless you, to calm you. And he will never, ever let you go. Now let this sink in. The infinite God who, is in, who in his infinite wisdom and infinite power designed and created the universe. That infinite God is your father. The one who controls and, and moves every event in human history the one who calls every star by name, knows every hair on your head. He has your back. He is your father. The one who loves you so much that he sent his son to suffer, to be rejected, to be tortured, to die, to rise again from the dead. He's never, never, never ever gonna let you go. So why do we worry? Why do we get so discouraged? God's love is always on you. He's your father. 
He never loses track about you. He never forgets you. He never goes on to someone uh, more interesting. Uh, You can talk to him. You can experience him. You can trust him. Because the moment you came to Jesus Christ, God became your father. Wow. Now let's go on. Let's go on to the second statement here, also in verse 9. Jesus tells us, teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. Now here we move from our identity to our mission. Now this word hallowed is an older word. We don't use it that much today. It means to uh, make or keep holy, to set apart to honor, to glorify. So when we do use the expression or the term today, we say things like this hallowed ground. It's been set aside because of a tragedy or because of a battle. But I want you to see something that Jesus is doing here that is in total contrast to our modern secular culture. You see, we live in a world, we've lived in a world Uh, for a couple hundred years now where secularists, academics in the major universities of the world uh, tell us that there is no such thing as purpose. All we have is cause and effect. There's no God, there's no purpose. And Jesus is saying here, wrong. God has made you in his image, and in Jesus Christ, he has given you a purpose, one purpose, a primary overarching purpose, and that purpose is in whatever you do, wherever you are, you glorify God. Mothers, you have one purpose in life, and that is to glorify God. All of you, whether you're at home, whether you're in the marketplace, You have one purpose, to glorify God. Oh, but you don't understand how difficult it is at home. You don't understand how uh, crazy it is uh, where I work. Uh, No matter what the situation is, you have one purpose. Then even in the darkest of hours, you glorify God. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. This is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Whatever, whatever, whatever you do, do it all, all, all to the glory of God. Prayer then, according to Jesus, is about something bigger than your wish list. Because life is about something bigger than you. Prayer then isn't about your agenda, it's about God's agenda. Hallowed be your name. You be glorified in my life, in my family, in the marketplace. You be glorified in our neighborhood. Prayer is meant for us to experience the beauty, the majesty. God, help me think about your glory, how hallowed you really are. God's wonder for us to experience the awe of God so that it might calibrate, direct, and align everything in our lives. Here, 
When Jesus says, pray, hallowed be your name, he is giving you your ultimate mission in life. You moms, you dads, you singles, everybody. And so my question is, are you really living? I mean functionally living. I mean, will you be living tomorrow for the glory of God? Peter didn't for a period of time. How can we tell? Because he denied Christ. And if you're living for the glory of God, you won't deny Christ. In the Old Testament, Achan, we know, wasn't living for the glory of God because he was consumed with money. Solomon, King Solomon, and all of his wisdom wasn't living for the glory of God because he overweighted sex, money, and power. And he lost the kingdom. Conversely, Abraham, Moses, David, Ruth, Esther, the apostle Paul, all lived their lives for the glory of God, even in life's darkest moments. And of that group I just mentioned, the Apostle Paul was really the only one in full-time ministry. Everybody else had marketplace responsibilities. Everybody else lived for the glory of God. Now let me go on to the third statement. Jesus goes on and he tells us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Wow. Uh, So Jesus has pointed us to God's love, our Father, God's glory, and now to God's sovereignty. Jesus is telling us, trust God, glorify God, and now obey God and submit to God. Obedience is the action. Submission is the attitude. Now, there's two parts to this, and when Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come, Jesus is telling us to ask God uh, uh, to bring about the second coming of Jesus Christ and the restoration of all things. But he's he's also telling us to ask God, to, to come to God and say, God, would you extend your royal power, your royal grace throughout all quarters of culture? Would your kingdom come in our school, in our schools, in my job, in the marketplace, in government? God, would your kingdom come? And then he goes on and adds, and pray thy will be done, which is similar, but it's more expansive. I love how Martin Luther, when he commented on this, thy will be done, expressed it 500 years ago. Look what he said. God grant us grace to bear willingly sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, and adversity. And to recognize that your divine will is to crucify our will. Not to wipe us out but to fill us, to free us, so that we will live in obedience and submission to the the living God. You see, when you know God is your Father, when you're clear about your mission, 
You will pray as Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done. And frankly, based on personal experience, I don't know any other way to get through tragedy, loss, and setback. I, uh, just speaking parenthetically, I've seen this, by the way, over and over lately in the lives of people here at Wheaton Bible Church. I mean, I mean people that are uh, in, in such physical crises that they're staring death in the face. Face. Uh, other people who have tremendous, I mean tremendous family problems or, or financial problems or a problem here and problem there. And, and what I've just gone through is an experience with a bunch of these people and I'm just coming away. Man, I'm the one that's being taught. I'm the one that's learning because to a person, these remarkable people are functionally living. God, your will be done in my life. Yes, this assignment you have given me is difficult, extraordinarily difficult, but I accept it. Not my will, but your will be done. And I wonder, can you say that? Can you say to God, your will be done in my life? You are the master, I am the servant. Now before I go on, there's one other thing that doesn't get said often enough as it relates to God's sovereignty and God's will being done in our lives. And it's this. One of the things this means is that you, follower of Jesus Christ, pursue excellence. You give yourself to excellence. Now, it's impossible to be excellent in everything, but there are certain things because of the talents, the abilities, the experiences, the education, the situation that you are in that God in his sovereignty has placed you in and he wants you to give yourself to hard work and excellence. As Jesus put it in the same Sermon on the Mount, that you might be salt and light and by your good deeds glorify God. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about a disposition where you're going to work hard, you're going to leverage your gifts, you're not going to squander them that God has given you. And you're going to give yourself because you are saying to God, your will be done, this is who you've made me, and I'm going to go hard after it for your glory. For a while, I want you to know, I have been praying this prayer daily. I've been walking my way through the parts on the front end of my prayer experience to kind of set the stage for what follows, and I've been meditating on what these statements mean. I've been talking to God about them. I've been pressing them into my life. And I want to ask you this Mother's Day 2018 to begin to pray this prayer daily. Not exclusively, but as a way to set a frame for your prayer life that you might experience the living God, that God might speak to you. As we think about these three vertical statements, they're just incredible. Now what I want to do is I want to go on to the second set that are equally, uh, from my perspective, mind-boggling. So here we move from the vertical to the horizontal. And the first thing Jesus tells us to pray is give us today our daily bread. Now we live in an affluent culture. Daily bread is 
something that happens uh, automatically for most of us. So we read this statement and you know, we think it's kind of archaic or maybe irrelevant, but I wanna say to you, it's not. I am married to a woman who is a doctor. And when she was a child, her family lived on food stamps. There are people all around us who are barely getting by. This is why the compassion ministries of Wheaton Bible Church are such a big deal to us. It's the way we practice being the Good Samaritan. It's why ministries like Pointe in West Chicago are so important. It's why this brochure you have in your worship folder today about our, our summer camp is a big deal because some of these kids that will be coming to the summer camp have nothing else to do this summer. But bread here, when Jesus says, pray, give us our daily bread, bread is a metaphor for our daily needs. And whether we're affluent or not, Jesus, uh, now get this, Jesus is inviting us to bring our daily needs to him. He's saying, come on, talk to me about it. Well, well God, I, I, I've got this incredible uh, work situation or this financial situation, or we just got some bad health news, or, or God, this, uh, this difficulty Uh, talk to God about it. Moms, you moms, Jesus is inviting you to bring your struggles to him. Your struggles with uh, children or, or an aging parent or credit card debt or a job situation or whatever. Uh, Jesus is saying, come to me, tell me your fears, your insecurities, and trust me. Now second, let's go on to the next verse, verse 12. Here Jesus invites us, tells us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now I want you to think about the transition here. Jesus has moved from our needs to our relationships. And he is addressing the social order of culture. And he is offering a principle that if applied would make a huge difference in every aspect of social order, every context. And it's the principle of forgiveness. Country to country, uh, worker to worker, educator to educator, student to student. Jesus is saying forgiveness is central. And one of the reasons there's so much bankruptcy in relationships in the social order today is because we have completely and totally ignored this principle. Now when Jesus uses the word debt, he is not talking about money. He is talking about sin. We know this because beginning two verses later, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus repeatedly ties forgiveness to sin. 
He's not talking about money, but why then does he use the term debt? He uses the term debt because when we sin, we incur a liability. Uh, you speed, you get a speeding ticket, you owe, you're liable. If you are married and you commit adultery, you have incurred a liability that no amount of money will overcome. You see, sin, uh, sin against God, sin against other people is always an act of treason according to God's word. It always places you in debt. And my experience as a pastor is that the ability to confess sin I mean, to really come clean, to really be honest, to really understand the darkness of your heart, which is evidenced every hour of every day, and the ability to confess those deep things that are going on, the idols in our heart, is one of the hardest things we do. I've observed over the years it's especially hard for you men. And to forgive others? Extraordinarily hard especially when the offense is great. So what do we do? How do we get to confession? How do we get to forgiveness? And Jesus says, you talk to God about it. You come to him. You say, Father, the forgiveness I have received, will you help me to, to extend? In other words, what Jesus is saying is the impossibly, extraordinarily hard task of forgiveness, confession as well, is realized when you pray. Now, some of you are really going to disagree with what I'm about to say, but I want to I tell you the biblical evidence supports what I'm about to say. And that is no matter how great the offense someone has committed against you, that one act or series of acts is not any more significant than your treason in your heart and your treasonous daily activity before a righteous and holy God. And when you understand that, when you understand the blackness of your heart, then God works as you pray and pray, and you will find the ability to extend forgiveness. And that takes time, and that takes work, and I, and I get it. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not teaching. It's easy for us to think this. Jesus is not teaching, especially if we come from church backgrounds, denominational backgrounds, Jesus is not teaching us here work salvation. You forgive and then you will be forgiven. Instead, Jesus is saying, uh, forgiven people forgive. People who have experienced my forgiveness through my death on the cross, well, they will forgive. It'll take time, it is difficult, but they will forgive. Unforgiven people don't forgive. And the way you work that out and the difference is whether you pray or not. Uh, you mothers, this Mother's Day, 
I want you to take this prayer and make it a part of your lives. I want that for all of you. Now, finally, we come uh, to Jesus' last petition, uh, found in verse 13, because Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. The NIV translates it evil one. You can go either way, evil in general or the evil of Satan. Now, all of us live in a world of moment-by-moment temptation. Temptation to pride, temptation to despair, temptation to capitulate, to lust, to anger, to greed, a temptation to ignore the needs of our neighbor. And temptation, temptation always tries to convince you that what God said is beautiful is really ugly. And what God has said is ugly is really beautiful. In the movie Matrix, it's the woman with the red dress who looks beautiful, but really is out to kill you. Now Jesus, when he says um, to pray, lead us not in temptation, is not saying pray that you will never be tempted. Uh, He was. Nor is Jesus saying, uh, pray that you will never experience heartache or heartbreak or hardship. Uh, Jesus certainly did. Instead, Jesus is saying, because you know God is your Father, because you know your mission is to glorify Him, because He know, because you know He is in sovereign control of your life, you can resist, you can overcome. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Uh, But I am firmly convinced that the hardest job ever assigned, the hardest career ever given, the most absurd, difficult marketplace job ever handled was God's assignment to Noah to build an ark. I mean, can you imagine Year after year, Noah, what in the world are you doing? Why are you building this thing? I mean, are you the only one who God speaks to hardly? Noah, this is ridiculous. Noah, you have flipped out. Noah, you are insane. On and on, year after year. But what did Noah do? Noah persevered. He did not succumb to peer pressure. He did not succumb to the temptation to look good in the eyes of others. He submitted, he obeyed God. Joseph, Genesis 39, did not succumb to sexual temptation. Paul, knowing everywhere he went, uh, jail, beatings, uh, imprisonment awaited him, never succumbed to fear, never. Never said, I'll skip that city. I'm gonna go watch the Sox or the Cubs. He didn't do it. Jesus is inviting you to come to him and to pray, God, would you deliver me in temptation? So let's go back. Let's put this prayer back on the screen and let's one more time as we conclude pray this out loud. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father, I wanna pray for these moms, I wanna pray for these dads, for these singles, for every single one of us retiree students. And pray that you would help us to pray by praying the Lord's Prayer, that not only in the Lord's Prayer might we pray, but we might experience you as we think about who you are and all that you have done for us. And we pray in your great and glorious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Let's stand together as we respond and worship.